Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. I've never been a COVID optimist, let alone a denier. But even I thought it'd all be over by now. With one huge vaccine push, we'd all be free. Yet three months on from so-called Freedom Day, cases are still high, hospital admissions are also high, and deaths are averaging 140 a day. It's as though we were stuck in a dance. It's not like we're going to reach herd immunity, then it's going to stop. We're going to reach herd immunity, immunity's going to wane, we're going to lose herd immunity. We're going to reach herd immunity, we're going to lose herd immunity. We're going to reach herd immunity, we're going to lose herd immunity. We're going to reach herd immunity, we're going to lose herd immunity. But stuck though we may feel, things are different. With vaccines, booster vaccines, and now the arrival of antivirals, we could be reaching a pivotal stage in the pandemic. I came up with two scenarios. Good outcomes. We will come out in spring. It will be the bright sunshine of a post-pandemic spring. My bad one is maybe now is not the time to go and meet great Auntie Joan. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the pandemic. Reasons to hope, reasons to fear. These less lockdown days, even COVID scientists have parties. Recently, Time Science editor Tom Whipple went along to one. Many of the top bods you've seen and heard being interviewed were there. I was at a drinks party, it must have been mid-September, and this had been planned from July. And in my mind, and I think a lot of the people going to it as well, it was kind of the COVID is over party. This was a party for the scientists who've been chatting about COVID and the journalists who've been chatting to them too. And it was a really nice idea. These are people I've been chatting to in some cases daily and we've never met. We were going to have had the summer exit wave, as it was euphemistically called, and then we were going to stand in a room together and have drinks and have some, you know, nibbles and discuss the war. But, of course, by the time it came round, it it felt more plausible that this was going to be yet another super-spreading event that would take out every, every media commentator and science journalist in the country. 
in other words, you were at a gathering of scientists and journalists, all of whom, despite being very realistic, had expected it all to be over by the time this gathering started, and who all found themselves together and it not being over. Well, I, d- I, d- I don't want to completely speak for them. I certainly had thought, you know, this was going to be broadly the end. But I've been rather ambitiously thinking it's going to be over in three months for mo- most of the pandemic. But certainly, I mean, I know that there were some of the modellers there who had produced models that implied that things would be largely on the wane then, as opposed to, I think we were hitting 30,000 cases a day and everything was going up at the time. So, yeah, I think there was a fair bit of surprise would be overplaying it but kind of just weary resignation that the treadmill was still going on you used your social occasion or rather you abused your social occasion in order to ask them what they thought was going to happen and answer came there nothing very clear yeah, I mean, obviously, if, if I'm sitting in a room with a, with a bunch of modellers, I'm going to ask them what their models are telling them. And actually, on that note, I guess I've been having pretty much the same answer for the past six months. Yes, they've been producing these models. In some cases, the, the press, in, including us, have you know, seized on some of them and said, well, this is far too pessimistic. This isn't how it turned out. But if you chat to them, and I'd imagine this is also what the advice has been going through to the government, if you actually chat to them about the model, they say, look, basically, we don't know what's going to happen. And that's not just because they're not good at their jobs. You've got to predict what the virus does, but you've got to predict what people do. And, and in a sense, their predictions feed into what people do. One of them said to me, you know, it's like, imagine if you're a weather forecaster. Well, that's a hard enough job as it is. Now, imagine if you're a weather forecaster, where the weather changed according to whether or not people had decided the weather was going to be bad enough that they should bring an umbrella. And that's basically <laughs> what being a pandemic modeler is we've reached a stage in the pandemic where things are a lot less obvious and a lot more finely poised right so there you were in that room having that wine having these uncertainties explained to you and a little bit further on not that many a matter of weeks on we are now where we are so let's talk about that where we are now in terms of covid numbers and where that leaves us compared to other countries Take it away. So in terms of cases, we are at about thirty to 40,000 a day. If you look at our peak in the summer, the average was at about 47,000 a day. And we're getting close to that now, the rolling average has been the same at the beginning of the summer. This is, I should say, massively higher than this time last year. What it's not doing is increasing quite as rapidly as this time last year. But of course, the huge difference between now and then is that we have the vaccines and you're seeing this play out in terms of hospitalizations, which are just the the right side of a thousand hospitalizations a day. In terms of deaths, it's now over a hundred would be our average per day and it's going up. But this is nothing compared to the worst day of the pandemic was in uh, January of this year. The United Kingdom has recorded the highest number of COVID deaths in a 24-hour period since the pandemic struck last year at more than 1,600. So we are way, way below that. Now, the difference is we haven't been peaking at these numbers. We have just plateaued at them. And it seems like, as a nation, we've kind of accepted that this is something that we can cope with 
in terms of the trade-off between sort of lives and living, we will keep this caseload and this death load semi-indefinitely. At the moment, this does contrast not brilliantly with other countries in Europe, particularly in Western Europe. Our cases are a lot higher, sort of six, seven times higher than comparable countries in Western Europe. It's not the best of comparisons, that, because we test a lot more than other people. And a lot of people have used this uh, as a sort of explanation for what's going on. And, you know, the media are overhyping it because it actually this is an artefact of how much we tested. That's not the case. You know, we were testing this much back in May and we were down at near zero caseloads. And if you compare to other countries in Western Europe, we also have higher death rates and higher hospitalisation rates. What I should say is, as I'm speaking, we're seeing big surges in the Netherlands, in Germany, in Belgium. It's entirely possible. We're we're in a slight yin and yang and have been throughout with Western Europe. And, you know, it's entirely possible that they'll be doing the anguish soul searching in two months time and we will have the lower cases. And some would argue, and some of the models show this, that the reason why we might might have a better winter is because we've spent all this time, uh, again, euphemistically, injecting immunity into the population. We've had a massive surge in cases, particularly in young people, which is now doing part of the job of the vaccines. The other argument is that we vaccinated first, that you have a waning immunity after the vaccination, and therefore our vaccinations are wearing off earlier. That's definitely true. If you were vaccinated, if you had your second dose in January, which is is possible late January for the people who went first, then, you know, that's a long time. We can see even with the Pfizer, which I think now it's with the greatest respect and, you know, not not sort of wishing to be unpatriotic. I think it's pretty clear that the Pfizer is outperforming on a lot of metrics to the AstraZeneca. Even with that, you will see a 15% maybe drop off in efficacy against hospitalisation. So, and that doesn't sound a huge amount. You've gone from maybe 95, 96% to 80% efficacy. But what that actually means is you've gone from 5% susceptibility to 20% susceptibility. So it's quadrupled. So the reason why the caseload is worrying is because immunity is waning. I don't think the reason why the caseload is high is because of immunity waning. The reason why the caseload is high seems pretty clearly to be because of massive outbreaks in schools. In the latest Office for National Statistics infection survey, there you can see that prevalence amongst 12 to 15-year-olds is is approaching 1 in 10. So that is what is driving our cases. And obviously, those are not the people who are vaccinated last. In fact, most of them haven't been vaccinated at all. Now, famously, anecdotes are not data, but anybody who spent any time on the continent in the course of the last month will tell you compliance with social distancing restrictions is far greater in some of those countries than it is here. It's just just what you can see around you. I don't imagine we have any statistics that show that this is what is responsible for the difference, but what's your sense of that? So I think that's almost certainly the reason that we're in the situation we are in the UK. You just have to look at the shape of their graphs. So most countries had a delta wave over the summer. And in most countries, they went up high and then they went back down low. In the UK, we went up high and we didn't come back down low. We made a decision on July the 19th to open up more than other countries. A short countdown to a long-awaited opening. Four, three, 
After 16 tough months, clubs are once again open in England with no restrictions. This doesn't necessarily mean that it was the wrong thing to do, but it is what we've done. And really, the British exceptionalism in this, the easiest way of understanding it isn't by comparing cases directly, because you always end up with people saying, well, you can't do that because of testing. But just look at those graphs. They were low, they were high, they were low. We were low, we were high, we're still high. But Tom, let's cut to the chase here. Is it your belief that more people are dying of COVID in Britain than are dying of COVID per 100 in the population in Germany or France? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's unambiguous. They do have, at present, lower COVID deaths than us. That's unarguable. We're on almost two daily confirmed deaths per million people in the UK. Belgium's on 1.26. Germany's on 0.79. Italy's on 0.62. Spain's on 0.56. And France is on 0.48. So in that sense, it's pretty clear that they're doing better than us. And I think that's probably because they took crushing the Delta wave a lot more seriously. So we have been more prepared to accept deaths from COVID than countries on the continent have been. Yes, I think so. I think that is fair. Now, there are plenty of ways of rationalising that. I mean, first of all, the simplest, obviously, is at some point you have to accept deaths from COVID as you have to accept deaths from other things. We are now going to be going into the winter with perhaps better immunity than we wouldn't have at you know, a high cost, which might keep down our winter wave. Because more people have had it here than have had it on the continent. Yeah, because more people have had it here. And because once Delta arrived, it wasn't just that it spread faster. It fundamentally changed what could be achievable in the pandemic. So when we had the original Wuhan strain, and we were all talking about herd immunity. If we were talking about herd immunity gained by vaccines, then we could maybe reach 85% immunity in the population and completely crush it. And you can effectively eliminate the virus from your borders. Once Delta came, it raised the herd immunity threshold to a level where this is not achievable through vaccines alone. The UK is racing to vaccinate all adults as the Delta variant has driven new COVID cases to more than 20,000 in a day. That's even though nearly 62% have been fully vaccinated. What's worse is those level of infections are going to persist. It's not like we're going to reach herd immunity, then it's going to stop. We're going to reach herd immunity. Immunity is going to wane. We're going to lose herd immunity. We're going to reach herd immunity. We're going to lose herd immunity. It's going to keep going. Because we can't use vaccines to get us really far over the line, we are always going to be in this dance with COVID unless something dramatic changes. Coming up. We may be stuck in a dance, but it's a dance where you can end up on the floor or deliver some high kicks. There are a lot of different ways this winter could pan out, as Tom will lay out for us. But first... I'm Matt Chorley. I'm a columnist for The Times and presenter on Times Radio. And we try to cover all the biggest stories, bringing you politics without the boring bits. We can only do this thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. So subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times. And it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. 
In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. So, with high numbers of infections and with hospital admissions and deaths on the rise, plus the threat of seasonal flu making a comeback, could we potentially be looking at a horrible winter? Or will vaccination and the timely arrival of effective antivirals take the edge off? I came up with two scenarios, although given my record in predicting anything, I think you'd probably bet on something far better or something far worse. For The Times, Tom Whipple has been considering the possibilities. Let's start with the rosier of the two scenarios. Good outcome. So at the moment we have still increasing infections. It's entirely likely it's going to hit 50,000 cases. But about half of these are in kids. My good outcome is this level of infection can't persist in kids indefinitely. It runs out of people to infect. My good outcome is after half-term cases plummet, mainly because of kids. We will still, I think, end up going into the winter with a fairly high infection load, but probably nothing like what we have now, maybe 10,000 a day, maybe 20,000 a day. And then we end up in the winter with a caseload we can cope with. Now, when I wrote this piece, we didn't have confirmation that we had bought antivirals. We have. So we're going to go in with an antiviral that can be given to the most vulnerable people when they get infected. So that should cut hospitalizations among the most vulnerable groups by half. So again, things are looking a lot better. There'll probably be another antiviral that we'll be able to use by the middle of the winter. So in terms of COVID, things will be fine. The other big unknown is flu. Now, I've spoken to the the best flu forecasters in the world, and like the best COVID forecasters, they tell me they don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> in the past, we've had flu as our constant sort of virological companion for millennia, and we've never had a year like this. So normally the job of a flu forecaster is in the Northern Hemisphere. You look at what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere during their winter. You look at transmission, you look at what strains are predominating, you plan your vaccines, you get them out, and you have quite a good idea about if this strain is predominating and we have vaccinated against it and it's doing this then this is what the year is going to look like this year we have completely missed a year of flu to all intents and purposes lockdowns absolutely you know that they stopped covid but they absolutely crushed flu now this year you can make the case which we will in our worst case scenario that having lost a year's worth of immunity to flu it's just going to go rampant but I'm going to make another case, which is one of the things that one of the fluke forecasts said to me is, well, look, it's coming from a very low base and it's coming to a population that still isn't close to behaving like it was in 2019. We still don't have anything like the number of contacts. We're behaving differently. The R number of the flu will almost certainly be lower. It's entirely possible that we get a pretty unremarkable flu year this year. And if that happens, we've had a winter of OK COVID, a winter of OK flu. We haven't reached a situation where the NHS has been close to collapse. We will come out in spring and it will be the bright sunshine of a post-pandemic spring. (laughs) And now, the not-so-good scenario. Hold on to your hats, folks. My bad one is I think that we will still see a drop in cases because I just can't see how the levelling kids will be sustained. So I was interested to note that the health secretary said that 
he thought 100,000 cases is possible. The darker skies, the colder weather provide perfect conditions. And ahead of winter, cases are rising and they could go yet as high as 100,000 a day. To me, that felt like a marker saying, unless it's more than 100,000 cases, we're not doing anything. And actually, 100,000 cases seems very, very hard to reach. So my worst case scenario would be a lot less than that. But let's say we go into the winter, our contacts pick up, we move inside more, and we're at 30, 40,000. But by then, it won't be in kids. It'll be in their parents, in their grandparents. Well, that's still probably a manageable load. That's maybe 1,500 people a day ending up in hospital compared to 4,000-odd in January of this year. That's not the kind of level that you start ringing alarm bells. But the problem then is, if it really starts to pick up, if you're France and you're going in with 5,000 cases a day, well, let's say the virus doubles every two weeks. So after two weeks, you're 10,000 cases. After four weeks, you're 20,000 cases. After six weeks, you're 40,000 cases. It takes you six weeks. It takes you half a winter to reach the caseload that we're going in at. But we're already there. And if you're at 40,000 cases a day and it doubles to 80,000 cases a day, you're only one doubling from 160,000 cases a day, which is you know, that that's pretty awful. And how does this happen? Well, it happens if the booster program's not great, because that's what we're really counting on to keep down hospitalizations. It, it, it happens if waning's a bit worse than we thought. And if this happens alongside something like really bad flu season, well, then you are really looking at hospitals being in an extremely bad way. And I suspect that's the scenario where you get the old threesome together on the Downing Street podium and they tell us to work from home. They introduce mask mandates, maybe vaccine passports as well, and they hope that that's enough. One of the ifs in that was the booster programme. What can we say about the success or otherwise of the booster programme? The impression one gets from, again, from anecdotal reports around the country are very mixed. The booster programme is, <laughs> at the moment, it seems to be a victim of the success of the first and second doses programme. The way it works is you get your booster if you're six months out from your second dose. The booster programme is still boosting less fast than a second doses program. So if you think about it, for every day of the booster program, you're falling, in a sense, further behind the number of people who need to be boosted. Because if you do 250,000 doses of your booster, but the day that same day, six months previous, you were doing 400,000, well, that's 150,000 people who haven't been done. The booster program is catching up. It's slightly suffering, perhaps a little bit because of demand. People don't feel they're in the same emergency situation now. Perhaps a little bit because we're also doing the biggest flu vaccination programme we've ever done alongside it. And um, perhaps a bit because GPs are extremely overworked. What's clear is it would be good if it picked up a bit more because we have had fantastic results this week from Pfizer. They continued their first trial. If you remember that amazing day last year when we got the results from the Pfizer trial. I will never forget it. Yeah. Pfizer releasing more details from its COVID vaccine trials. We are getting the final results. So now it's showing it's 95% effective at preventing cases of COVID-19. And again, their results are 95%. But this was a comparison of people who had two doses to people who had three doses. So before the trial showed that two doses 
were 95% effective at stopping it compared to people who had no doses. This time, it was on top of having two doses. So you were doing 95% better. And Boris Johnson's got this wrong when he talks about it. He says, oh, it shows it's 95% effective. It shows it's so much more effective. Because let's say that you're that after two doses, after a year, your immunity had waned to 80%. Well, this takes you up to 99%. Of course, it will wane after that. But what this is saying is that the Pfizer is hugely effective as a third dose. And of course, in Britain, everyone's getting Pfizer as a third dose. Well, and and indeed, I got one myself two weeks ago and was incredibly happy to get it. But I just want to interrogate our own maths for a moment. If, let's say, six months ago, 450,000 people were getting their second dose and only 150,000 people are, you might be able to pick up to 200,000 next day, but you've still fallen even further behind. In other words, every day you're not at 450,000, you fall further behind with the booster programme and your immunity wanes, unless I've completely misunderstood how maths work. Yes, yeah, yeah. You, no, you, you're absolutely right. That is exactly the problem. Every In a weird sense, we're running just to keep up until we get to the stage where we're matching the second doses programme of six months ago. So that is the issue. That will mean, at the you know current rate, to get through the top nine priority groups, we'll be looking at the spring but hopefully things will pick up and my strong suspicion is by the way that we will all end up getting boosted that it won't just be those most at risk because i think these results are so spectacular that it would just make a lot of sense just possibly they're good enough that we could get past that situation where we're just doing this dance with the coronavirus where we could actually get ourselves a bit over the herd immunity threshold now the other thing you began talking about were the antivirals tell me what these antivirals are exactly what they do, and at what point you get administered with them. Antivirals are drugs that treat the coronavirus rather than stopping the coronavirus. At the beginning, we had the race for the vaccine, but there was always another race. There was the race for the antivirals. And these are a lot harder to do. A virus is hard to kill because it's basically already dead. Most of the things it does, it does by hijacking your cells. So you can't stop those processes because if you stop those processes, you stop the processes in your own cells. But there are a few things that it does for itself. And if you can get a small molecule that will gum up the works, then you have a hope of treating the virus. The drug is for people who are well. They've got COVID symptoms, they're COVID positive, but they do not need hospitalization. The drug is called molnupiravir. 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 Remember that one, folks. Molnupiravir, which is the first purpose-built antiviral for this that really seems to be doing something. If it was given early enough to people who'd just been infected, who were vulnerable, it seemed to keep about half of them out of hospital and seemed to be even more impressive when it came to deaths. Give me a vision of what this will look like. I think this is potentially a game changer. In a nursing home full of vulnerable people, we can stop COVID before those patients deteriorate and end up in hospital or dying. We've ordered almost 500,000 of them. Our antivirals task force this year is doing a job that our anti-vaccine task force did last year and has been getting in buying these drugs so that we can have them for our winter. 
But you have to give them early. If you, I don't know if you remember those adverts for cold sore cream where it says, treat the tingle before the cold sore arrives. That's because the tingling bit is when you can get the biggest effect on these viruses. So it's logistically very difficult. Well, it is very difficult, isn't it? Because it means, effectively, that you've got to be able to say, I've got this thing this morning, I suspect it's this, I need to get hold of this almost unpronounceable drug right now and that means you've got to go through the normal processes of getting it prescribed i presume because it's not going to be available in boots and that's where you hit the problem to be clear we have not been told how this will be deployed i think partly because they're still working out how this will be deployed one of the options is if you are in we already have people in at-risk categories we have these categories one to nine that use the vaccine program maybe if you're in categories one to three When you get a PCR-positive test, you get sent a course of this treatment in the post. Another possibility is if you have a confirmed case in a nursing home, then you give everyone in the nursing home, including their staff, because this will probably stop transmission as well. So there are a few ways you want to do this, but 500,000 doses at 50,000 cases a day, if you gave it to everyone, that's 10 days and you're done. Now, we want these to last the winter and more, so they are definitely not going to be a mass deployment. It's not the only antiviral there is, is it? No, it's not the only antiviral there is. As well as the molnupiravir, the other one is from Pfizer. We've bought a quarter of a million courses of that, and this is ahead of it completing its phase three trials. We don't know if it works. But the thing about this is, unlike vaccines, you might take them both. So together, the sort of combination therapy might well be better than having them on their own. So those are all the possibilities. And According to either of your models, the big kinds of restrictions we've had, we're not likely to get again. We just might get some what they call mask mandates and some working from home suggestions. Yes, I think it's astonishingly unlikely that we will ever do anything like closing schools en masse again. I think we'll be looking for the high value, low cost things And also we'll be doing so, maybe I I hesitate to say it, as a sort of Swedish approach. If you have Witty Lance and Boris Johnson standing up there on the podium saying, we now want you to work from home if you can. And that would be a very strong signal that, you know, maybe now is not the time to go and meet great Auntie Joan. Maybe now is the time to make sure you really do do those lateral flows before you go to a care home. Perhaps let's not have such huge gatherings for a bit. We can slightly fine-tune the R number ourselves collectively. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Times science editor Tom Whipple. You can find all of Tom's reporting and analysis at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer was Chris Wade, the executive producer today was James Shield, and sound design was by Vulcan Kiseltug. Tomorrow, Emily Dugan from the Sunday Times will be back with the final part of her investigation, 17 Years, the Andrew Malkinson story. Don't miss it. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. 
In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>